Good evening. Tonight we'll be opening up to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. The book of Genesis, we'll be looking at chapter 1. I titled this sermon, The The Garden Man. We'll be focused particularly on man and and his role as as an image bearer. And so I will be reading from chapter 1. We'll be looking at chapters 1 through 3, but I'll be reading from chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And so if you will turn there with me in chapter 1, if you will stand for the reading of God's word, if you're physically able to do so. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, Moses writes, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, In his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the the goodness of your word. We thank you that it orients us, it reminds us who we are and who we are in light of you and your goodness and your truth. And we pray this evening that as as we study man in particular in the garden, that that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your scripture. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The garden narrative is, on one hand, it's surprisingly brief especially when you come to terms with how profound the implications are of these first three chapters of Genesis as the Bible opens. In Genesis, we're introduced to the sovereign creator God, who in six days he makes everything. We're introduced to our first parents and our arch nemesis, the snake. We see the goodness in creation, but we also see the utter devastation of the fall. We come to understand our role as image bearers, those made in God's image But we also learn the implication of our cursed-filled life. But even amidst the tragedy of the fall, we're given hope and a promise of one to come. And so tonight, as we focus particularly on man, as I said, in the garden, we we will be returning to discuss woman in the coming weeks from now. But it's impossible. It's impossible for us to even speak of man without speaking of woman. So we will see how those roles are harmoniously intertwined to one another in the garden. And as we've been teaching through Ephesians, we've been focused particularly on how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. And so currently, we'll be focusing, again, on on man as we've been discussing the last couple weeks. Pastor Tim, last week, he outlined both the importance of us embracing our biblical roles, and he also provided warnings last week. Warnings for us that we would not fall into the pitfalls of false teaching regarding the role of men and women, particularly in the church. Pastor Tim warned us of the idea of egalitarianism, or what we would commonly know as feminism. At its core, feminism really promotes sameness across all planes, across all spheres. It despises any sort of distinction between man and woman. And feminists are adamant that unless that sameness is achieved in every sphere, then there cannot be equality between man and woman. On the flip side, though, Pastor Tim Tim warned us of another movement, a movement gaining steam called the Patriarch Movement. 
And it's an idea that's really emerged throughout history, so in some capacity it's not new. But the patriarchs, they see men and women as actually having different natures, having different natures from one another. And they call upon men to dominate their wives, to rule over them in really a similar fashion as a, over a child or as we are to the created order. It ultimately undermines the one flesh union that God has ordained, and it attacks the personhood of women. And so we need to uphold, we need to uphold the dignity and personhood that, is, that we are as image bearers of God, as we will see. The patriarchs, they, they oftentimes they mock servant leadership as a weak form of masculinity, and they often promote sinful, sinful tendencies within men. There's a pattern that I've seen within the movement of blaming women for many of their problems. No new thing, as we'll see in the garden. They also promote crass language, vulgar language, and oftentimes perverse language. And it's easy to think that such things are, are, are far off or distant, are not in our backyard. But I'll echo what Pastor Tim warned last week. They're not only in our backyard, but they're in our gates. And so we have to be careful that we can interact biblically when we speak particularly of the roles of men and women. So we have to be on guard against false teaching, any teaching that would diminish the wisdom and purposes of God. And we also need to live lives that picture who God created us to be, that embrace our differences, that we would embrace the roles that God has given us as men and women, but that we would also uphold that men and women are equal in nature, in dignity, in worth. But then that we would also recognize those distinctions between the sexes and their roles and in their functions, embracing the strengths and weaknesses that God has given us as men and women. And so this understanding has often been called biblical complementarianism. It's this idea that, that men and women perfectly complement one another, that their strengths and weaknesses would, would pair up in such a God-ordained way, that they perfectly and harmoniously live with one another in a way that is really unexplainable outside of God's wisdom. And so as we open the pages of Genesis, we see God acting. We see God speaking, God creating, the sovereign God of the universe, willing everything according to his will and his good pleasure. He's making a majestic creation, the heavens, the earth, the vegetation, the animals, and he's displaying his glory all the while. And so we're introduced in verse 26, though, to this profound working of God of making man. In verse 26, Moses writes, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Moses starts in verse 26 by saying, Let us, that God says, Let us. Moses didn't fully comprehend the triune nature of our God, but we see hints throughout Scripture pointing forward to the triune nature of God, the mystery that would be revealed in Christ. And so I think that this is already a foretaste of what is to come as God says, let us make man in our own image. And he says that let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so it's important that we take a minute to talk about this idea of image and likeness. The, the word image comes from an idea of cutting or, or hewing something. So if you've ever heard the, uh, the term, someone was cut from the same cloth, 
maybe a father and son or a mother and daughter kind of cut from the same cloth, from that same mold, that, that same likeness. And so that's the idea of that image. And then he also uses the term likeness, that we would be like. Throughout scripture, this, this likeness term, it's used at many times to talk about modeling something beyond itself, a representative of something. Even the temple, in many ways, is that, that model. The, the temple was modeled after Eden, and it was also a model pointing forward to the new heavens and new earth. And so we see that as image bearers, that, that the ones that we are created in the image and likeness of God, that we are to image the God of this universe. There's something massive that is happening here in verse 26 as God says, Let us make man and woman unique, different, other than the rest of creation. That we are created in God's image and likeness, that we are his image bearers. And one thing we see throughout scriptures is that names matter. In the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, not every name means something in particular, but many of the names throughout Scripture have great meaning. We look at Abram, which means father. God renames him Abraham, father of many nations. We look at Isaac, which means laughter. That constant reminder of Sarah laughing at the promises of God. Or Jacob. Not as nice of a name, that heel grabber that Jacob was. And his name means heel grabber, literally. Or we look at Hosea. More negative examples is he's called to name his kids, No Mercy and Not My People. And so throughout Scripture, we see this pattern of names that matter. And I think that the name Adam matters. Adam is his, his proper name. And so we see throughout the, the Genesis narrative that he is called Adam his proper name. And one thing that we do miss in the English translation is that all of mankind is also called Adam. That all of us, our name is Adam. That as he talks about mankind in general and Adam proper, just Adam, he uses that same term, Adam, Adam. And so Adam is the representative head of mankind. God chose to name Adam, Adam, and he also chose to name the human race Adam. He could have named the human race Eve, but he chose to name us Adam. And so Adam was created first, and so God's intent was for man, Adam, to take the lead. He was our representative head. He was our covenantal head in the garden. Adam also means ground, or Adam-ah means ground. And so we see that Adam is, is brought forth from the ground, that reminder that here is Adam, the one brought forth from dust, that God breathed life into. And we're also reminded that Adam will return to the Adamah. That because of the judgment of God, the man from dust will return to the dust. And so names matter. There's a reminder in his name that Adam is to bear the leadership role of man, of man and woman. And he calls them to have dominion, that dominion mandate, as we see in verse 28. Moses writes that God said that they were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and every living thing that moves on the earth. The dominion mandate is done in harmony. 
There's no fruitfulness apart from the union between man and woman. Man takes the lead, but that doesn't diminish the fact that the woman is part of this dominion mandate. It's an amazing responsibility when you think about it. We're to be God's representatives. Not only do we image him in some capacity and in, in, in even who we are in our nature, but how we are to act. How we are to act, we are his representatives. There, there's a term often used, his vice regents over creation. A vice regent is one who acts on behalf of another. A great biblical example of this would be Joseph, where Pharaoh entrusts Joseph with the responsibility of Egypt during the famine, that he would make decisions in preparation for the famine and during this famine. Joseph was acting as a vice regent, acting on behalf of Pharaoh, given authority to do these things. In a similar manner, we've been entrusted to have dominion over the earth, but not by Pharaoh, but by God. He has called us to have dominion over the earth. But if you look at verse 28, it stands on the heels of verse 27 that God created in his own image male and female. We see that equality there, that they are to have dominion over the earth. And so we are to care for God's creation. We are to represent God and how we have dominion over the earth. I had a friend once, a, a Christian brother, who he didn't, he didn't care about recycling. He's just like, I, I don't really care because the whole world's going to get burned up anyways, and so it, it doesn't really matter how we treat the earth. Well, the earth reflects God's glory. His creation proclaims his goodness. It proclaims his majesty, and so we ought to care as Christians. It doesn't mean we have to chain ourselves to every tree that's about to be chopped down, but it does mean that we care for his creation, that we don't clear-cut a forest and not care what happens behind that we do make wise decisions as we have dominion over the earth. And so we are to reflect God's glory in how we care for his creation. And God calls it all good. Everything is good at this point. We see this account of what God has done as he has created the earth. He has called it good. And then we begin to see the extended account of God's dealings with man in the garden. And so in chapter 2, Moses writes in verse 7 of chapter 2, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Again, he formed Adam from the Adamah. He formed Adam from the ground and breathed life into his nostrils. That breath of life and man became a living being. In verse 8, Moses continues, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put, he put the man whom he had formed. So he puts Adam in the garden. He describes the garden. We see the, the beauty of the garden, the trees, the rivers flowing out of Eden, and it's bracketed by verse 15. If you look at 15, you see the putting, the putting of the man in both of those phrases there, in verse 8 and in verse 15. There's, there's, there's a lot of structuring that Moses does in Genesis, and I'm only highlighting a couple of those. But in, in, in verse 15, we see this bracketing that Moses writes, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and to keep. To tend or to dress and to keep in the garden. These are two important terms that are used throughout Scripture moving forward. This idea of tending or dressing is to serve. 
The root of that word means to serve. It's the service towards another. Oftentimes, a slave to their master, but most particularly, a priest, as they serve in the duties of God. As they serve God, they were to tend. They were to dress. They were to to serve God. And then to keep. This idea of keeping charge. They were to keep charge. It's it's a word that means an idea of, of keeping your flock or guarding, or guarding. And turn with me to chapter 3, verse 24. Chapter 3, verse 24, we'll see this guarding return. He writes, So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword, which turned every way to what? To guard the way to the tree of life. That Adam was to tend, was to dress, was to guard, to keep the garden. God's creation. And now by verse 24, everything has gone awry as we know chapter 3, and now Adam is being guarded so that he will not return. And a terrible course of events. But the mandate that we have is, is to serve and to guard. Adam was that covenantal head. Many theologians have referred to him as a priest king in the garden, that he was to exercise God's rule and that he was to do it in the service of God as a priest would do. So as image bearers, we're created to reflect the one in whose image we were created. And along the way, he gives him one command in verse 16 of chapter 2. He gives him one command, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. At this point in the text, we have not been introduced to Eve yet. It's man who is receiving this command. It's Adam who's receiving this command. Man is to take responsibility for the fate of humanity, of mankind. He is to lead specifically in his obedience to God. He was to administer the law of God, God's statute, that he would not eat of the tree. He was to lead in accordance to God's word, God's command. Men, we're responsible for leading our households. We as men, we are responsible for exercising care as we lead our households. We are to model the way. We are to pattern the way that God has called us to lead in. But there's one thing incomplete still in creation. There's one thing that still makes it incomplete. And we're introduced to that in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. A helper comparable to him. There was none like him. God had created all things to reflect his glory Everything has been created. Everything has been declared good. And now God makes the statement that it is not good. That there is something missing. And so we're keyed into the importance of the act of what God is about to do. Man has none like him. 
Adam's been exercising his dominion. He's been naming the animals. He's, he's begun to exercise his dominion, yet something, something is missing. Even after all these animals have passed by, even as he's getting to know the creation, he's left wanting more. And we as readers are left wanting more for Adam as God makes this statement. And so God continues to work. In verse 21, God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. And then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman, and he brought her to man. And Adam says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. I find it interesting that God chose to cause a deep sleep upon Adam. There's a couple pivotal points in scripture where man falls asleep. One is when God covenants with Abraham. The carcasses are are split in two, representing what will occur for any covenant breaker. And God causes Abraham to have a deep sleep. And it's only God that passes between the carcasses. It is God that will uphold the covenant. And it's also God who will bear the consequences of covenant unfaithfulness. It is God who is acting. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the disciples fall asleep twice as Jesus is about to take the cup of God's wrath. There's no mistake in both of those occurrences, and here again, it is God who is working. It is God who will achieve his purposes. It is the sovereign God who is the one who will work and will according to his good pleasure. And so Adam falls asleep. And God makes something unlike anything else in creation besides Adam. God makes one that is like him. One with the same nature as him. One equal to him. You know, patriarchy actually denies that women and men have the same nature. Declare them to have different natures. But woman literally came from man. Women literally came from man. And now egalitarianism doesn't do much better as it overemphasizes that same nature and it diminishes the distinction between the sexes. And so we have to uphold that same nature. We have to uphold that, that equality that we have in essence, that equality that we have in dignity and worth, but yet understand those distinctions. Understand that there is a distinction between men and women. And there's a beautiful scene as God unveils Eve in a sense as he brings her to man. Imagine the scene. Again, God has created all these amazing things. He's declared everything to be good except one thing. Man has no one beside him. Adam is lacking. Adam is not complete. And then God presents him with Eve, this beautiful moment. Now, I had a, a close friend who was about five or six years older than me, and so he got, he got married uh, well before me. And we were very close, and he became my best man at my wedding. And as we were preparing for the wedding, uh, he, he began talking to me and giving me advice and things like that. And he said, well, when she walks down the aisle, you're going to be bawling like a baby. He was a little more in touch with his emotions than, than I tend to be. And I was like, no way. It's, it's not going to happen. I love my uh, fiancé, soon-to-be wife, dearly, but I, I just don't see myself crying when she walks down the aisle. 
And he was going to be my best man, as I said. He's like, don't worry. I'm going to bring a box of tissues. He's giving me a hard time. He's like, I got a box of tissues for when you start crying. I'll be there for you, brother. And so, sure enough, Amelia walks down the aisle with her father arm in arm. And as he removes the veil and as she's walking down the aisle, I started crying like a baby. And so I picture in the garden, Adam. Adam, who's been missing that one that's like him. And all of a sudden, God presents Eve to Adam. This beautiful scene of God's goodness, God's provision in this act. The beauty of this scene. There's something amazing about that reality that God has has created man and woman distinct, but yet there is a great harmony there. He is called woman from man. And even in her naming, there is a reminder that she has come from man. There's a reminder that that he is, is the head in this relationship. He calls her woman because she was taken out of man. And it's good that English has preserved the, the, the terms to where they, they sound f- f- familiar. You, you have man and you have woman. Same thing in the Hebrew. What he's saying there is that he's calling her Isha because she is from Ish. Ish and Isha, man and woman, very close terms there. And so, again, these names matter. These terms matter because they're reminders of who we were created to be. That, that woman has come from man, that, that man will be the head. But that, doesn't, that does not take away from their equality. And they're called to leave and to cleave in verse 24. He writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. He is now to take responsibility for this newly formed family. Woman now comes into man's household. A new family unit is formed as man and woman are joined together. And so we as the church, we must take ownership for our homes. And we must model, we must teach, we must encourage men in particular to possess godly leadership in their homes. We must train up men to love their families well, to lead well. We must build up marriages and we must support godly households. And we see the beauty of that in verse 25. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. They were not ashamed. Being naked brings vulnerability in a relationship. And we see in light of particularly the fall, it begins to bring shame and that added vulnerability. But in perfect harmony, in perfect one flesh union, there would be that trust. There would be that love to where they could feel naked and unashamed. That, that there would be such union between the two of them that they would be naked and unashamed. But quickly, we are introduced to another character in the narrative, and that's the snake. We are introduced to the snake. In verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God not indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? So he begins to question what God has done. He begins to question God's dealings with man. 
But he first does something cunning or sneaky, as his name would describe. What does he do? He goes to a woman. He's challenging God's created order. Right as the snake begins, he is challenging God's order by going to a woman first. Satan knew that the created order was ordained by God, and he defies that order. He defies the ordering of the family. He ignores the man, and he takes his questions straight to woman, ignoring the man. He intentionally puts her in the position of leadership. He intentionally puts her in the position of the leader and defender who Adam was created to be. And so what Satan does is he begins to set in motion a pattern of men and women relating to one another, not according to God's plan, not according to the roles that God had created them to relate to one another with. Genesis had been teaching us the hierarchy of creation, that there's the sovereign God who creates. That great God, as Pastor Tim preached of this morning, there's man who is to lead the woman, equal, but he's to lead her, and there's the created order, the animals, particularly the snake. And so there's a hierarchy in creation, but in the fall it's reversed. Woman listens to snake. Man listens to woman. It's important to recognize that no one's listening to God. No one's following God's direction. It's a complete reversal of how it ought to be. It ought to be God, God's direction being followed by man leading woman and them having dominion over that snake. But we see something very telling in verse 6. In verse 6 of chapter 3, Moses writes, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. It's almost in passing. It's almost in passing at the end of the verse. You could almost just read right over it. But it's important not to because Moses wrote it for a particular reason, inspired by God. He writes, she also gave to her husband with her. And he ate. And he ate. She gives it to her husband. The man was passive. There's this interchange between Satan and the woman. And yes, she gives in. But in some capacity, it's almost like she's, she's putting up a fight against the snake. She, she tries to reiterate God's command, even though she doesn't do it perfectly. She doesn't do it word for word. She, she adds some things in there about not touching it. But, but she puts up a little bit of a fight, a little bit of hesitation there. as She's being tempted. But if you see in verse 6, man puts up no fight. Man just takes. No challenge, no hesitation. No leadership provided, no restatement of God's command. He just takes. And then what happens? He works to cover his sin. In verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were, were opened and they knew that they were naked. We see that fellowship lost. And, and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves coverings. They try to cover their own sin. They try to cover their own newly found shame. And they try and do it themselves. 
that natural religion is already beginning, that we would cover our own sin, that they would make their own coverings, and then they hear God walking in the garden, they begin to hide, and God addresses man first. He, he works to cover his sin, but God addresses his, him first in verse 12. Then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Pastor Tim brought it up pretty thoroughly last week, but as I spoke of the, the patriarch movement, there's a consistent blame there seems to be towards women through blaming feminism for their problems, blaming feminism for the demasculinity of men. It's no new thing. Started in the garden. But Adam's the leader. Adam's the one who should say, I shoulder the blame for this. But men have a pattern of blaming women for their own sinfulness, and it goes back to here in the garden. There's a term called passing the buck, and it's the idea of passing blame. Passing responsibility to another person. I think a good biblical example of this is Pontius Pilate. What does he do? He tries to wash his hands of the blood of Christ. He tries to wash his hands of this whole incident and what's going on. It doesn't work that way, and he was held accountable for his sin. But he's trying to pass the buck. He's the leader. He's the decision maker. It rests on his shoulders, and he tries to pass the buck on the people. Harry Truman was president from 1945 to 1953, and we, we may not agree with all of his political views, but one thing that I think was very admirable about him, whether he lived it out at all times or not, there was a sign on his desk, a sign on his desk that said, the buck stops here. The buck stops here. He recognizes president of the United States, it was his role to shoulder the responsibility of a nation. It was his role to not make excuses to not point to someone else because he's the president of the United States. And so that, that, that plaque on his desk was a reminder. It was his role to shoulder the blame. It was his role as the president of the United States. And so the leader must take ownership of things. I oftentimes ask why feminism would be such an attractive thing to women when you look down at it. Oftentimes I think it's because men have neglected to show women how wonderful it is to come under godly leadership. That men ought to be showing a pattern of godly leadership. There's nothing more beautiful than that. There's nothing more beautiful than a, the, the pattern of a godly man who leads his family. And so, men, let us not fall into the pattern of Adam, shifting the blame when we ought to be taking the responsibility. Let us instead lead well. Let each of us lead well in, in the church, in our homes. And more profound than him blaming Eve is him blaming God. He says, the woman whom you gave me, who you gave to be with me, she did this. It's the clay questioning the potter. It's the one who is formed questioning the one who formed him. How could you do this, God? It's because you gave me. It's this woman, this defective woman you've given me, is what he's saying. He's blaming this on the woman rather than taking responsibility. 
And we may think that's silly, but practically, we can do that in our lives. And it sounds like this. We say something to ourselves, God, if only. God, if only I had a better job, I wouldn't come home and be so frustrated with my family and lash out like this. Or God, if only my wife would respect me, then I would love her. Then I would love her as you tell me to do in Ephesians 5. Or God, if only these trials weren't in my life, I wouldn't be frustrated all the time. I wouldn't be so distracted from you. Let's not blame God. Let's not point the finger back at our creator God as Adam does here. We are to take responsibility. God calls him to account for this. And so Adam bears a unique and primary responsibility in the fall. It's clear from the text that he failed to exercise his dominion as God had called him to do. It's clear from the text that he has failed to, to live out the leadership role that God had given him. Now, when I first was new to management in the business world, we had a district manager come down shortly after my new tenure as a manager. And the district manager comes down, and they only come about once a year, and they start walking the club with us. They start walking our building. And they're saying hi to all the employees. They're greeting them. The district manager, she was so nice to all the employees, shaking their hands. How are you doing? What's your family like? Things, asking all these great questions about people, getting to know our employees personally. And as our management team is walking with her, we're thinking, this is going great. This, this is, is going so well. We can't wait to wrap this thing up, this day up, because we have been stressed for weeks prepping for this visit. And so as we get back to the office, me as a, as a new manager, I'm thinking, this is going to go well. She shuts the door. Everything changes. This was wrong. This should have been differently. Why are your employees doing this? All of those types of things. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is shocking to me. I, I thought we were, we were having such a great walk here. It's because the leaders, the managers, they shoulder the blame. She's not going to go address the employees. She's going to address the managers. The district manager is going to go to the managers and say, why are you not leading the way you're supposed to be leading? Why are you not doing the things you ought to be doing, leading your people in a particular way to do these things? It's the same thing in the garden. That's why God goes to Adam first. God says, you're to shoulder the blame, Adam. I gave you the command. I gave you the dominion over this earth, and you have failed. So let us not neglect our duty as men to protect and to direct our families, that we would direct our families godwardly. Eve does still have to ultimately answer for her sin. But throughout scripture, we'll see that this whole garden fiasco is credited to Adam. You just go to Romans 5 and you see that we are all condemned. All of humanity is condemned. And it's not in Eve, it's in Adam, our first head, our covenantal head. Christ is compared as as a new Adam, as a greater Adam, as one who undoes the curse. And so we see throughout this scripture, this crediting to Adam of what has occurred. In verses 14 through 19, we see the curse. We see God judge the snake, the woman, and the man. The curse for the woman occurs in verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over 
you. From the beginning, man was created to lead, lead Eve. It's a misconception to think that the leadership of man happened at, because of the fall. It was patterned into creation. What happens at the fall, though, is now their relationship will be beset by struggle and hardship. That now there will be hardship between the sexes. That life in a fallen world will not always be easy as men and women relate to one another. That there will be a vine for that position that God intended man to possess. And then in verses 17 through 19, though, we see, we see a, a much more extended judgment against Adam. Starting in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Again, Adam will return to the ground, the ground by which he's named after. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. It's interesting, too, that in the judgment of Eve, what's not brought up is God's command. He, again, holds Adam responsible. It's in Adam's judgment that you see God bringing up how he had commanded Adam, saying, you shall not eat of it. So in Adam's extended judgment, you see God bringing up his commandment because it was given to Adam. Adam was to exercise his leadership in following God's command. And now the ground will be cursed. Adam was to tend, to care, to cultivate. And so Adam's role to provide is not a product of creation. Again, it was his role to tend, to care for creation, to cultivate. But now he will do it in hardship. Now it will not go easy. And ultimately, it will end in his own demise. That ground that he will toil against his life, he will end up returning to. Now, all of this has massive implications for us for our lives, for the way that we pattern our households, for the way that we relate to one another within the church. It changes how we order our homes. Men are to be the heads of their homes. Not because of the fall, but because God has ordained it this way. God has ordained that pattern by which he has laid down. That we ought to have responsibility, that we ought to share, that we ought to, ought to shoulder the responsibility of protecting, of providing, of ordering our homes rightly. And it changed how we, how we order the church. That men would lead well in the church. That we would not obliterate the role distinctions within the church or the home that God has given us. Instead, we ought to live them out. We ought to show the beauty of God's design. The beauty of how men and women complement one another. That we ought to put that on display because it is a gospel reality that we would love each other in the manner as, as Christ loved the church. That, that ultimately man would love his wife as Christ loved the church. Now the fall reminds us though that this will not go easy. That there will be a struggle as we live this out. It reminds us that there will be a challenge ahead as we live out the roles that God created us to live out. But praise God, he has given us 
what is sufficient to live them out. Even in Genesis, as we see the curse, we see God's glorious promise in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking, of the, speaking to the snake here, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 points us forward to the one who is to come, the one who will crush the head of the snake, the one who from Adam and Eve, the seed, will undo the curse. And so Adam can look forward to that future hope, and we can look back to the work of Christ. And because of that, we can live out Ephesians 5. Because of that, we can live out our roles, both at home and in the church, because of what God has done in the gospel. That Christ was obedient where we failed. Then the garden where Adam failed, Christ was obedient. Christ was obedient every moment of his life, yet he took the judgment that we deserved. He died the death that we deserved. We were waiting for one to undo the curse. You see that throughout the narrative of Genesis and throughout the whole Bible. The genealogies teach us that. If you look at the genealogies in Genesis, you see a pattern. And he died. And he died. And he died. It just continues through there. They're waiting for one who will not die. They're waiting for one who will undo the curse. And you have a foretaste in Enoch. As Enoch does not die, he goes to be with God. But we see this pattern of continual death. Until the God-man Jesus Christ comes, and though he was slain, he conquers death. And so Genesis 3.15, in the garden we have everything that we need to point us forward to the work of Christ, the undoing of the curse. And so as we live out these roles, we do it in light of the gospel. We can't do it in our own strength. We do it by the power of the Spirit. We do it in light of Christ's atoning work on the cross the one who had crushed Satan's head, the one who would undo the curse. So men in particular live lives of self-sacrificial leadership. Lead your homes well. Lead the church well. Let us be servant leaders that lead in a godly manner and a godly direction. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the goodness of your wisdom. We thank you for the goodness of the gospel. That even as early as Genesis 3.15, that immediately after our fall into sin, Lord, that you provided a means, a means for, for, the, for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the, the goodness of that gospel. We pray that you would help us to live lives that honor you in every capacity, and in particular as we live out in the household of God, as we live out our lives in the household of God, we ask that you'd help us to do it in the power of the Spirit, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.